Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome, folks, to another day in Crime Time Land. I'm excited for today's episode, as it's one I've been interested in for several decades now. And the best part about it is, is that I get to share this with my little buddy, Ash. We're actually going to be doing a deep dive into the world of a New England serial killer. No, it's not Israel Keys, although we will tackle him in a future episode, we promise. This case is about a serial killer known as the Connecticut River Valley Killer, who was on a reign of terror during the early part of the 1980s. This case was super interesting, as I wasn't familiar with it until Nat mentioned it a few weeks ago. I actually ended up finding myself going down the research rabbit hole, and it's definitely a wild one. It's so crazy to think that there could be a serial killer walking amongst all of us right now, and you would never know. You know, Vermont has had a weird history with some notorious serial killers. It's true. Vermont has definitely had a piece in several serial killers' backstories. I know there's Israel Keys, who we mentioned. He murdered a couple here in Vermont, uh, actually in Ash's hometown. And then, of course, there is also the infamous H.H. Holmes. He trained as a doctor at the University of Vermont over in Burlington, right before he left to go build his evil murder castle out in Chicago. And I think I mentioned this before, but Ted Bundy actually was born in a woman's shelter in Burlington, Vermont. And this is where he also learned that the woman who he had known as his sister his whole life was in fact his mother and his parents were actually his grandparents. And, you know, I think there was an actor who had this happen to them. Uh, he was in The Shining. Oh, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson. Yes. Yep. That's him. Yeah. He later found out later on in life that the woman he was raised with as his sister was in fact his mom, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. That's, I can't even imagine going through that. I just can't. And I think it's actually happened to quite a few people in this world. It's, it's mind blowing. And in Ted's case, I wonder if that's kind of what triggered maybe some of the psychotic serial killer behavior. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure Ted was always going to be a psycho killer, but this probably didn't help. Yeah, that's probably a good point. Maybe that (laughs) was just kind of a predestined event. There's actually one serial killer, though, that I wasn't personally aware of. I found it while I was researching the idea of serial killers and just their relationship to Vermont. And this one was a serial rapist and killer named Gary Lee Schaefer, who happened to be a native Vermonter who raped and murdered at least three girls back in the early 80s, similar to this case. I honestly think that we will probably tackle this case in a future episode, but just wanted to throw it out there too that that this was a serial killer active in the 80s in this area as well. It's just kind of crazy when you think about how all of these types of monsters are running around, they're hiding in the dark of night, pretty much while most of us are just going about our days and not really realizing that there could be crazy evil cycle predators just hanging about. And I don't know about you, Ash, but I personally kind of just think of serial killers as not a Vermont problem. It's kind of like something that happens out in, you know, big cities, out west somewhere, not here in our our sleepy little state. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. You just never know who may be living next door. And it's sad that several serial killers often can hide among us for years as our neighbors, coworkers, even friends, and no one would ever know that there's a dark passenger that they carry alongside them who comes out at night to commit some of the cruelest atrocities on innocent victims. So as we always say, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light and take a side seat to the darkness as we talk about the Connecticut River Valley Killer today. Man, I always feel sad when we leave the light and we go on adventures into these dark, dark mines. So little buddy, it looks like uh, we're going to go into that deep, dark, creepy cave together. (laughs) All right, Ash, lead us on in. This one's wicked crazy, so buckle up, nerdlings. We're traveling back into the 1980s, and it's a dark road ahead. So, this case begins in 1978 and ends in 1988 with a series of unsolved murders that took place between the borders of New Hampshire and Vermont. It was a murder spree that spanned a full decade until it ended with more questions and answers. So, as I said before, our case begins in 1978, And it begins with a 27-year-old named Kathy Milliken. Kathy had been out on October 24th, 1978, photographing birds at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve, which is located in New London, New Hampshire. Kathy was never seen alive again. Her body was found the following day, just a few yards away from where she had last been seen. Kathy was found with her skirt pulled up and her body had at least 29 stab wounds. We are then moving to July 25th, 1981. Mary Elizabeth Critchley was a 37-year-old woman who disappeared near Interstate 91 near Massachusetts and the Vermont border. Mary was said to be hitchhiking over to Waterbury, Vermont after allegedly getting some dental work done. Her destination goal was about an hour or so away from the area where she disappeared. This was the last time she would be seen alive. Her body was found on August 9th near a wooded area in Unity, New Hampshire. Her body was so brutally tormented and badly deteriorated that the medical examiner couldn't reach a determination of death. And at this time, Mary had been a University of Vermont student. You know, it's it's funny that or not funny, I should say, but it's kind of crazy this relationship that a lot of a lot of these crimes and just in general, a lot of crimes that happen in Vermont have to the University of Vermont. It makes you realize just how that's kind of like the central figure with within our state. Yeah, definitely. I agree. It almost seems like the cases that we have done and the cases we are going to do in the future mm-hmm. all kind of relate back to the University of Vermont. Yeah, it, I agree. And I know that this was a long time ago, so that's the one thing we should remind folks of, too, is is that hitchhiking back in the 1980s, 70s, 60s, that was, that was a completely common thing. So don't be alarmed by hearing the term hitchhiking, and no judgment should be passed on these folks. A lot of people did it back then. It wasn't considered an unsafe thing to do until cases like this started happening more and more. Definitely. I agree. Like, I can probably assure you that our parents hitchhiked. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's de- it definitely was a thing back then. It was, yeah. So we are moving on to May 30th, 1984, when a young girl named Bernice Cordemanche fell into the hands of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Bernice was a 16-year-old girl who had been hitchhiking along Route 12 in New Hampshire to go see her boyfriend in Newport, New Hampshire. Bernice was last seen wearing a blue denim jacket, denim pants, and suede shoes. 
And if that isn't the 80s, I don't know what is. (laughs) That just screams 80s. It does. When Bernice didn't reach her boyfriends, a missing persons report was made, and it wasn't until several years later when a fisherman was out fishing that he came across Bernice's remains on April 19th, 1986. And this was actually in Kellyville, New Hampshire. So Bernice's body wasn't found until two years later. Her body was found about a thousand yards away from where another Connecticut River Valley victim was found about a year before. She was found partially laying in a stream and part of her body was missing. While her death could have been the result of an animal attack or from an injury, an autopsy report stated that there were stab wounds and injuries to her head and neck. Sounds like this creeps MO for sure. Mm. At the young age of 16, Bernice was a nurse's aide who had just wanted to spend the day with her boyfriend. Super unfortunate. It really is. That one hurts. So now we're looking at the day of July 20th, 1984. The next victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer was Ellen Freed. Ellen was a 27-year-old woman who is said to have been using a payphone in Claremont, New Hampshire, late in the night of July 20th, 1984. Just a reminder that these crimes were committed during a time when folks often hitchhiked and cell phones didn't exist, so you had to stop and use a payphone in order to make a call or if you just needed help while driving. She had been talking with her sister for about an hour when she noticed and remarked on a car that had been circling back and forth in that area. According to her sister, Ellen had stepped away from the call to make sure her engine started, which is so smart. It all comes down to trusting those instincts, nerdlings, seriously, like we always say. Mm -hmm. So after talking for a while, Ellen decided to hang up from her sister, and this is the last time anybody spoke with Ellen Freed. The following day, Ellen didn't show up for work, which is really unusual for her because she was known to be very reliable. The car that she had gone to check on that night was found later that day abandoned on the road just a few miles away from that same payphone she was using. Nothing seemed to be amiss when the police found the car. The car was locked. Everything seemed to be perfectly fine, so it didn't seem out of the ordinary. It seemed that Ellen had just vanished into the night after speaking with her sister, and no one had seen her since. Ellen's remains were later found that following September in Newport, New Hampshire, in a wooded area on the banks of Sugar River. The medical examiner reported that she too suffered from multiple stab wounds, and she likely suffered from sexual assault. Her body was found in close proximity to where Bernice's body was also found. Ellen was a supervising nurse at Valley Regional Hospital. Oh, that just makes me so sad. Poor Ellen. Like, Honestly, she did everything that any of us would do in that situation. I'd be so freaked out if I were her and I saw this rando just circling around the parking lot while I'm trying to talk to my family member on a phone and I'm in a really super vulnerable position. And so the smart thing was to go and check her car. It just, it kills me that she did all of that. You know, she really was trying to be safe and she still ended up, you know, being found in the middle of the woods somewhere. Yeah, I I can't even imagine either. No. That was so smart on her part to go check to make sure her engine was running. She definitely probably had an instinct that made her feel uncomfortable, and that is the reason why she checked her engine while she was on the phone with her sister. That makes sense, especially knowing that her sister's there on the phone 
I mean, I, I know all of us have done this where you're like, hey, hold on. I need you to stay on the line while I go check some sketchy thing out. Definitely. Are you kidding me? I've been on the phone with friends and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. I heard I heard something in the other room. You have to stay on the line with me as I go check it. <laughs> you know, yeah. It just it kills me that poor Ellen just didn't, even though she, she tried trusting those instincts, she didn't have a chance. It's just so sad. And the other thing, too, is, is this guy really seemed to have a thing for super young just nurses or women who are hitchhiking. It's crazy to think about a time when people actually felt safe just hitchhiking with somebody you didn't know. I honestly can't even imagine being brave and trusting enough to get in someone's car that I didn't know and just go on a ride with them. But, you know, like we said, it was a different world back then. So I keep having to remind myself when I read the case notes for this that I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it was a different world. This happened a lot back then. But this is exactly why there's that fear of hitchhiking. This case right here is a prime example of why it's not safe to do it. And this was probably, I think, 40 years ago, roughly. So this guy totally took advantage of of the fact that a lot of women were doing this. So it was an easy way for him to go on a joyride and basically pick up whatever victim he wanted that night whenever he wanted to do it. It's crazy how he knew to strike when women were in these isolated situations. You know, they're, it's late at night. They're left alone on a stretch of highway. And if you've been on an interstate in Vermont, in any location in Vermont, it's dead. So especially, you know, late at night, we're not talking high amounts of traffic. And I bet in the 1980s, it was even less. So this guy was definitely an opportunistic killer and more like someone who would go out on these nighttime prowls and kind of just drive around looking for his victims. To me, it seems like there wasn't a whole lot of premeditation on who the victim was going to be. It was more on whoever was there and convenient at that time. So as we move forward, the Connecticut River Valley killer continues on his rampage. Beginning on July 10th, 1985, we pick back up with Ava Morse. Ava Morse was a 27-year-old single mom. Like his other victims, Ava was last seen alive hitchhiking near Route 12 near Claremont and Charleston, New Hampshire. Ava never returned that night and she was reported missing soon after. Her remains were not found until the following year in April 1986. That's the worst part about these crimes is that a lot of the victims were just reported missing and their bodies weren't even found for at least a year to two years later. Loggers actually found her body a mere 500 feet away from where Mary Elizabeth Critchley's body had been found five years prior to that, back in 1981. And these loggers were actually the same people who found Mary's body, which is, I can't even imagine that in a five-year span, they find two bodies. I, uh, I, I feel for them. Nobody should ever see that. Autopsies revealed the same MO of stab wounds, Notably to her neck, as we know, this Cretan seemed to like to stab women in the neck and head, and Ava was last seen wearing a light blue windbreaker and jeans. Yeah, so this one kind of really sticks out to me. I, I, When I first heard this story, or when I first heard this crime, I couldn't get over the fact that the same two loggers found these bodies. Right. Most of the time... When you think of a serial killer, they kind of like to interject themselves into like searches mm-hmm. or funerals, vigils, any of that stuff. So they reach out to journalists, yeah, so detectives. I was, I was kind of thinking on like, oh my gosh, what if these loggers 
were actually the ones that did this crime. Yeah. But then after living in the East Coast for like a long time, <laughs> yeah. you kind of, I totally put that out of my mind because being a logger, they're in the same areas all the time. Yeah, they really are up here. It's not like they could be logging the same area for for decades because a lot of times in New England, they're they're clearing land for like farms, for building lots, things like that. And we live among dense forests, so I I could see them being there for several years over the span of several years for projects. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it just sucks for these people that Mm. not only did they find one dead body, which... You should never really see that in your life at all. They saw two. Right. So it's great that they found these these women. That's such a great piece for their families. Yeah. But I just still feel for these two. Oh, definitely. That is not the thing you expect to find at 9 a.m. when you go into, you know, your 9 to 5. So our hearts go out to them, too. Definitely. So... We continue on with these awful murders into the following year, April 15th, 1986, when Linda Moore would cross paths with this elusive serial killer. Moore was a 36-year-old who lived in Saxton's River, Vermont, which was not far from I-91 where several of the other victims met their deaths. Unlike the other victims, it is believed that Linda was doing yard work and getting some sun outside when she was followed into her house and attacked by this unknown assailant. Linda was responsible for handling the payroll for her husband's contracting company. She often filled out the checks for her husband's employees, and they would often go to the Moore house in order to obtain their paychecks. So it wasn't unusual for people to be swinging by left and right throughout the day. On the day of Linda's murder, her husband had called her to let her know that he would be sending some employees over to collect their checks that afternoon. Linda never picked up the phone, so her husband decided that's unusual. He's going to head over to the house and go ahead and write a check for one of his employees because the employee needed their paycheck and Linda wasn't picking up. So her husband was kind of thinking maybe she wasn't home, which was kind of unusual in and of itself. Linda's husband noted that when he arrived, her car was still in the driveway and their St. Bernard was outlying in their front yard. Linda's husband would walk in the door to find his wife brutally murdered. Linda had multiple stab wounds, which was something upwards of 20 stab wounds. And authorities could tell from the crime scene that Linda had fought valiantly for her life, seeing as there was blood splatter everywhere just from the attack. Linda's husband actually had to go out and stop his kids when they got off of the school bus so they wouldn't see what had happened to their mom. I can't even imagine that scenario. It is unreal to me. And multiple witnesses even stated that they had seen a man ranging from 20 to 25 years old lingering outside of Linda's house the day of the attack. He was said to be somewhat stocky, clean shaven, and he had a round face and wore dark rimmed glasses. Basically an everyday looking person. Some witnesses stated that they had seen this gentleman with a blue knapsack. One interesting lead here is that several of Linda's neighbors who had seen the man that day were actually able to give police enough details on his description so that police were able to put together a composite sketch of their purported suspect. But just like the other murders, Linda's case grew cold and the Connecticut River Valley killer is able to go underground once again. All right, so now we're moving forward again to January 10th, 1987, with the murder of Barbara Agnew, who was a 38-year-old woman. We've mentioned before that one of the most common winter pastimes here in our 
tiny little state is, of course, skiing and snowboarding. We're known for it. This is what we do. Many of us go out on the slopes, middle of winter, nothing unusual. And Barbara Agnew was just like many of us. She wanted to go out and enjoy just a little break on the slopes in the middle of winter. So Barbara had been on a skiing trip with friends of hers in Stratton, Vermont, which Stratton's a very common ski mountain. And she was going to be returning home the day she disappeared. On the evening of January 10th, her BMW was found by a plow driver abandoned at a rest stop in Hartford, Vermont, which is right on I-91 northbound. The BMW had blood on the steering wheel, which made it very evident that this was not just a normal abandoned vehicle and that something seriously wrong had occurred to this person. The door to her BMW was also cracked open, which... No matter what, most people just don't leave their car doors open a crack. That's not a common thing. You know, you kind of always listen for that click when you shut your door. So that alone is a red flag. Barbara's body wasn't found until March 28, 1987. She was found close to an apple tree in Hartford, Vermont. She was still wearing her ski bibs and her ski pass was still attached to her winter wear. Which that one really kills me because most of us have gone skiing up here in Vermont. It's just, you know, it's part of the culture. You wear your little ski badge all winter long. It's just your pass. It's pinned to your jacket. It's a, it's kind of like a, a Vermont badge of honor. So to think that she had been found with it makes, I don't know, there's something about it that just makes me super sad. Even more unfortunately, unfortunate is that her sister had to identify her by the jewelry she was wearing on the day of her disappearance. I can't even imagine. And the examiner stated the result of death was due to, shocker of shockings, multiple stab wounds. One of the reasons she wasn't found until several months later was because there had been a heavy snowstorm on the night of her disappearance, which is why there was a snowplow driver out that night who subsequently found her car at the rest stop. So that's why the snowplow driver isn't a suspect in this at all. Not unusual for them to be out, especially in the middle of a snowstorm. Actually, more unusual that Barbara had pulled off into that rest area in the first place. You know, if there's a snowstorm, you don't tend to do that traditionally. Barbara's body was actually only 10 miles away from her own home. So it's really unknown why she would have pulled over to the rest stop in the first place. Considering she was less than 10 miles from her house, that that is just so strange to me. It's not something that really makes a whole lot of sense why she would even pull over. And unfortunately, this is something that is just going to be forever unknown, seeing as the Connecticut River Valley killer was never caught. I just don't understand why she got off the interstate. Like, that's the part that has, like, sticks with me through and through. The only thing I could think of was... Either maybe the storm was so bad she had to pull off to the side because she couldn't see. I've done that before. I don't know if I'd go into a rest stop, but maybe it was really bad. So that's one thing I thought. Or maybe her car broke down, which is another possible option. But it's unfortunate that that it was her getting off at that rest stop. That was her undoing. That's the part that still puzzles investigators of these murders, as it doesn't make sense that she would have gone to the rest stop unless she felt like she had to. This whole thing is so tragic. She was so close to safety. She only needed to make it 10 more miles before she could get to the safety of her own home. Granted, as we know from Linda Moore, that may not have stopped this monster from attacking her. He seemed like once he found his victim, he would do anything to finish the plan. 
It's nuts how long this guy has been doing this. He murdered so many women, but there's some good news in all of this darkness. We get to now talk about the final known victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And holy moly, this one has a different outcome because this monster's next victim actually survived. Thank God. So we actually have a survivor girl in this madness. Right? All right. So if this wasn't insane enough, here's where this case gets even more bonkers. So we're now looking at over a year later since the murder of Barbara Agnew, and it was just starting to seem like these murders were calming down. That is until the night of August 6, 1988, when Jane Borowski was attacked. Jane was 22 at the time, and she was seven months pregnant. Let me repeat this, guys. She was seven months pregnant. Jane was coming home from the county fair in Keene, New Hampshire, where she had pulled off the road to stop at a vending machine for a soda. The convenience store was closed, but the machine was outside and was still running and functioning. After Jane got back into her car, she noticed a Jeep was parked next to her, and a man she didn't know was approaching her car. The man asked Jane if the convenience store had a functioning payphone. He then ripped her from the car and held a knife to her throat. Jane told authorities that the man was saying she beat up his girlfriend, which doesn't make any sense. And for the people in the back, she was seven months pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, a seven-month pregnant lady, not really known for going and beating up some random dude's girlfriend. Not on the regular. Just saying. That's kind of my thought on that one. Exactly. So the man then asked her, while holding a knife to her throat, if she had Massachusetts license plates in her car, to which she replied, nope. Her vehicle had New Hampshire license plates. He probably was looking for different plates to put on his car for some unknown reason. Immediately, the psycho stabbed her. He then repeatedly stabbed her 27 times. The man assumed Jane was dead and left her at the convenience store. But Jane, the superhuman, miraculously wasn't dead, and she even managed to get back in her car and drive towards a friend's house off Route 32 in New Hampshire. After this monster stabbed her 27 times while she was seven months pregnant and left (laughs) her for dead. So Jane gets back in her car, and as she's driving towards her friend's house, she noticed her attacker was actually in the Jeep in front of her on the road. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I – my heart would have stopped. This this girl is insane. She is such a superhero. Amen. Such a brave, brave woman. I can't even. I, I don't think I would be that brave. Jane miraculously made it to her friend's house and immediately went inside. After Jane made it to the safety of her friend's house, the two did see the attacker in the Jeep, pull the U-turn, and pass by the house slowly, and then proceeded to speed off. Jane and her friend were able to call the authorities, and Jane was immediately taken to the hospital. At the hospital, Jane was treated for multiple injuries, including two collapsed lungs, a cut to her kidney, several tendons cut in her knee and her thumb, and a sliced jugular vein, to name a few. Jane's baby also survived this awful attack— Thank goodness. But later on, the baby was diagnosed with mild cerebral palsy, which may or may not have been related to the attack. And I don't know if they'll ever really be able to tell if this was related or not. I don't I don't think yeah. so, unfortunately. I don't really think there's a way to tell. Jane Borowski is the only known survivor of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. 
she actually was able to provide authorities with a composite sketch and even the first three characters of the attacker's license plate. Her attack was the last known attack in this area, and as suddenly as the attacks had begun back in 1978, they ended that night in 1988, a full decade later. The Connecticut River Valley serial killer has never been apprehended and is unknown to this day. I wonder what happened so that he never struck in the area again. It almost seems like maybe he moved after he came close to getting caught because Jane lived so she could identify him. And generally speaking, serial killers don't usually quit killing. There's been some exceptions, but generally speaking, most continue on their rampages. They just kind of shift areas. So in my opinion, more than likely, this dude has moved out of the area, especially right after he attacked Jane. So I think that's why it ended with Jane's attack. I think that got too close to home, in my opinion. Totally. And it's weird that he just, like you said, up and stopped killing folks. And it's not as common to see a serial killer just stop. Um, And the weird thing that always gets me, like, tripping up is that... In Linda Morris' case, this guy was never seen covered in blood. Mm. How did he just waltz into her house, murder her brutally? And I'm pretty positive he had to have her blood all over him. Right. How did he go attack her, kill her, and then leave the house and nobody saw him leave? Like, how could... I'm pretty sure neighbors would see a guy walking down a street or running through yards covered in blood. Well, and, you know, it makes sense, too, that back in the 80s, I don't think DNA testing was as advanced to where it is now. So I wonder if they would have even noticed if maybe he had showered or something like that in her own home. Now you would know, but I don't know if they would have then, if that makes sense. That is a good point. I did not think that he could have showered and cleaned up in the house. And I would think that by the time he was finished with the attack and by the time it's not a large window of time before her husband gets there. So that's another risk, too, that they would have taken if they did. That's true. I did not think of that. Yeah, it's I don't know. This, it's weird that no one saw any guy from any of these, actually, with blood on them. And these are brutal crimes. So it is kind of strange that no witness saw a guy covered in blood, which, like you said, he would be. Yeah, it is very strange. And especially in a small town, normally you have a couple nosy neighbors that are always looking out. Oh, for sure. We live in quiet, sleepy Vermont, and everybody knows everybody. (laughs) And let's be real, we're all kind of like snooping on each other. We all know. (laughs) I know I do. I'm like, what's my neighbor doing? (laughs) (laughs) So we do have some follow-up notes on this case for you guys that we found interesting and wanted to share. It is thought that there were other possible victims to this killer, but these murders haven't been officially ruled as his doing due to lack of evidence. For example, in Charleston, New Hampshire, June 11, 1968, a woman was sexually assaulted and strangled. Her name was Joanne Dunham. While the crime is many years before the first known victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer, she is linked to possibly be a victim due to the area in which her body was found and how she was murdered. In Plainfield, New Hampshire, on October 15, 1982, Sylvia Gray's body was found with multiple stab wounds and bludgeoned to death. Her body was found in a wooded area just a few yards from her home. In Paulette, Vermont, on September 19, 1986, an abandoned car was found at a gas station off Route 7A. The car belonged to Sarah Hunter, 
She had been strangled and her body was found at the edge of a cornfield two months after her car was found. Now, this one is a strange one, and I personally am not sure if it is a victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer, but it's considered a possible one. It just has a different MO and it's the opposite sex. Mm. So I'll let you guys decide. (laughs) So in Hartford, Vermont, on June 20th, 1986, Stephen Hill was last seen in Lebanon, New Hampshire. On July 15th, his body was found in Hartford, Vermont, across the river from where Sylvia Gray's body had been found. That is a strange coincidence if it wasn't the Connecticut River Valley killer. That's fair. That is really weird. It is. It's a strange, strange coincidence. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. So our last one is in Goffstown, New Hampshire, on July 25th, 1989. Carrie Moss left New Boston, New Hampshire to visit her friends in Goffstown. Two years later, her body was found in New Boston, and due to the condition of her body, medical examiners couldn't determine a cause of death. Ugh, that's that's rough. So she's a potential one, just probably based on location. Yeah, and I don't know. It's it's pretty crazy. These locations are all pretty close to mm-hmm. where we know the Connecticut River Valley killer was, and the, most of them have the same MOs. Yeah. So. Yeah, the only one I'm on the fence about is the um, Stephen Hill being male, and it doesn't really fit the MO, and I'm not sure about the 1968 woman, Joanne Dunham. Those two, I don't know, they seem a little strange or a little off, but there's got to be some reason that they're linking them as potential, so. Yeah, and it's weird. I wonder, I mean, maybe there's another serial killer that happens to get Stephen Hill and Sylvia Gray because they were across the river from each other that's just Mm. that's pretty crazy to me oh gosh the idea that there were more active serial killers in vermont is terrifying i know (laughs) i know (laughs) um yeah so now that we know who the victims were it's time to take a look for the several suspects who were thought to have possibly been the connecticut river valley killer just remember that while these are potential suspects no one has ever been formally arrested in relation to these murders, these are just some folks of note that uh, police have either recognized as potential suspects or internet sleuths have, have put up. So just something to keep in mind. We're not accusing anyone at this time. Well, we might be accusing one person, but generally we're not <laughs> accusing anyone. So we start off with a man named Delbert Tallman. Tallman was a 21-year-old who had confessed to the rape and murder via stabbing of a 16-year-old girl whose name was Heidi Martin back on May 20th, 1984. That does kind of fit with our time frame, the age group, because Heidi Martin was 16 and it was um, Bernice who was also 16. So I could see that relationship there. Heidi was said to have been on a jog in Hartford, Vermont, that We've seen that town come up time and again in this. And unfortunately, she was on this jog when Delbert had abducted her. He confessed to murdering her. He then later recanted his statement and was acquitted on the charges of rape and murder when he went to trial. Oh, that that one hurts. That one hurts. Delbert had ties to Claremont, New Hampshire, and everything seemed to line up that Delbert may be the guy. Barbara Agnew's body was found about a mile away from where Heidi was killed. That's a coincidence that seems to happen quite frequently in this case. I agree. 
it's very, very intriguing that this keeps showing up time and again. So our gentleman here, Delbert Tallman, was released from prison for sexual assault charges back on October 6th in 2010. Here's the mind-blowing part. He is only currently 57 years old, which is crazy town. That is not old at all. In my brain, I'm picturing a much older gentleman. 57-year-old is dad age. That's not crazy, crazy old. So what makes this interesting is that if he had been imprisoned not long after the attack on Jane Borowski, it could make sense as to why the killings abruptly stopped, especially if he was serving a sentence of around 30-some years. It would explain that, that gap. We don't see any killings after 1988. With that said, though, there were never any formal charges put against him in relation to the Connecticut River Valley killings. Another possible suspect was a man by the name of Gary Westover. Now, Westover was a 46-year-old paraplegic man. In October 1992, Westover said that he needed to confess something to his uncle, Howard Minnan, who happened to be a retired sheriff. Westover told his uncle that in 1987, he and three of his friends had been getting ready for a night of partying, as youngins do, and him and his friends loaded up his wheelchair, and they got Gary into the car, and these guys all headed out for Vermont. And supposedly, when they went on their adventure to Vermont, the boys abducted and murdered Barbara Agnew, and she was the last murder victim of what is thought to be the Connecticut River Valley murders. Because remember, Jane did survive. So the retired sheriff shared that information with his wife, and then on to the authorities, because remember, he was a police officer at one point, so he was following the right procedures. Minnan stated that it seemed as though authorities weren't interested in the information he had to give them, which is really unfortunate. So Gary Westover died back in 1998, and the retired sheriff, Howard Minnan, passed away in 2006. So while Howard Minnan had received Gary's confession, Gary wasn't ever actually tried for any of the crimes related to the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. So now we're on to the last suspect and a personal favorite of many internet sleuths like Ash and myself— our last suspect is a man named Michael Nicolau. So Nicolau was a Vietnam vet, and Michael became a potential suspect in 2006 when he shot and murdered his estranged second wife and his stepdaughter before killing himself. Because he's a vile human, and he's absolute trash. So what links Michael to the Connecticut River Valley killing is that previous to his second marriage, Michael had a wife whose name was Michelle Ashley. Side note, it's not really sure if they were legally married or just considered common-law spouses or long-term partnership, but his wife for all accounts and purposes. So Michelle and Michael had a very rocky relationship. They also happened to have two kids. Michelle had even left Michael at one point earlier in 1988. Michael convinced Michelle to come back, which kills me because this happens so much in our world. I really, really wish that these creeps just weren't able to manipulate people as as easily as they do. It's so, so scary and so unfortunate. You know, they're charming, they're charismatic. So I can absolutely see how they get their way and they are able to convince people to do what they want. 
So not long after she returned back to him, Michelle went missing sometime between November or December of 1988. Just be aware, Michelle happened to go missing the same year that the Connecticut River Valley killing stopped. Of course, Michael would always state that she had run away whenever he was questioned about Michelle's disappearance. Awful convenient. Eventually, after living in several different places, Michael would settle down in Florida. Michael later married a woman named Eileen Nicolau, and it was alleged that Michael actually had run Eileen over with his car one night during an argument the two were having back in 2005, which is about a month later from the incident where he ended up shooting Eileen and his stepdaughter. What's to know is that Michelle is still missing to this day, and it is strongly considered that foul play is at hand. Considering it's been almost 40 years, I'm, I'm going to second that it's more than likely foul play. A private investigator saw the headline of the shooting back in 2006, and she dove in. She looked to see if there were other missing women in 1988 around Holyoke, and bingo! She found the murders of multiple women all in the same geographic area as Michael Nicolau's missing first wife. So Michael Nicolau also happens to share some similarities with the composite sketch that Jane did back in 1988. He had ties with New Hampshire and with Vermont, and his second wife had family here in Vermont. Also, he and his family lived fairly close to Interstate 91. He had owned a Jeep Wagoneer back in the 1980s, which happened to be the same kind of car that Jane Borowski clearly identified on her ride of terror to her friend's home. So in 2007, police had announced that he was a suspect in a rape case from back in 1984, but Michael was later cleared for that charge. And we're not really sure why he was cleared or why he was considered in the first place. So while living in Virginia, Nicolau actually opened up a sex shop that was raided twice and was said to have found obscene materials. So Michael had actually left and gone from the Holyoke area in Massachusetts to Virginia, Florida, then Georgia, which is where he killed his second wife. So this guy traveled a lot. So while he was in Virginia, he, of course, gets raided for obscene materials. Shocker of shockings. Um... That's not normally the basic porn kind of stuff we're talking here. When you're rated for obscene materials, it, we're talking about some pretty ugly, disgusting, dark, dark things. So, as you can see, this might help to make him a prime suspect. So, we have web sleuths who have been suspicious of Nicolau being involved in other murders. So the ones that a lot of folks have likened to being maybe Nicolau are the Colonial Parkway Killer, the Blue Ridge Parkway Rapist, and the Shenandoah Park Murders. Interesting enough, Gary Westover, our suspect from earlier, was also thought to have been acquainted with Nicolau through the VA hospital, because remember, Michael was a veteran as well. But this isn't actually confirmed. It's purely theoretical. The private investigator actually showed Jane Borowski a photo of Nicolau, and Jane actually saw a similarity between her own attacker and that photo of Nicolau. The only hiccup in the thoughts that the serial killer was, in fact, Michael Nicolau, was that he wasn't technically living in this, what's considered to be this area at the times of the Connecticut River Valley killings. But one thing I would like to know is that I actually Googled this to verify because I didn't think it was very far. Holyoke 
isn't that far from the Connecticut River Valley. It's actually about three to four hours max. These crimes typically happened late at night, which means you can go a lot faster. So that four-hour drive might cut down to three. And it's a pretty straight shot. It's only really a few hours. Most serial killers don't really hunt in their own backyard. So I don't really think that that's a reason to not consider Nicola. Just my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And Nat and I are now going to kind of go into what our thoughts are about the outcomes of this crime. And unfortunately, this blunderbuss of a man has never been found. So this guy might very well be walking and living a normal life. He could quite possibly be a friend's grandfather. It's just very scary to think about. And I really hope a person in his family tree happens to use a genealogy kit of some sort, kind of like the Golden State Killer, and we can trace this Korean. I personally think that the prime suspect here is Michael Nicolau. Uh, He has a really interesting past. He's an interesting feller. And it's a big red flag to me when I read that there was a statement that when Nicolau's son got pushed by a neighbor's kid, Nicolau went on to set the neighbor's car on fire. Excuse me? What? This is absolutely uncalled for. And he seems like he is a very loose cannon. And I also think that it is very interesting that he has ties to Vermont and the surrounding areas. Yeah, I'm with you. I Like I said, I personally always lean towards Nicolau myself. Dude, Loose Cannon is a great descriptor of this guy. I, I like Trash Can, but I'll, I'll settle with, with Loose Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he seems like such a strong suspect, you know, considering his ties to the area. This guy's got a history of violence against women. He's got this disappearance of his first wife or, or partner. And then the brutal, brutal murder of his second wife and his stepdaughter. The fact that he left this area right around the same time that the Connecticut River Valley killing stopped. Also, huge red flag to me. And I will admit, if I didn't so strongly believe it was Michael Nicolau, I'd probably wager that this killer was someone completely unknown to the police and wasn't any, you know, any of these suspects um, outside of Nicolau. And maybe this guy died, he was arrested uh, for an unrelated crime, or just moved. But overall, I just find that Nicolau meets all of the criteria, in my opinion, to be pretty much like suspect numero uno. I do hope that eventually they're able to identify this guy, you know, like you said, either with DNA evidence. It's amazing what is coming out with some of the genetic tracing through like ancestry sites. So Fingers crossed they're able to actually maybe identify this guy, you know, even if he's long dead. It's just so that the families can at least be able to put a name with their loved one's murderer. I think they're owed that. It's, it, it you know, that's who I feel sorry for in all of this. I, I don't like glorifying serial killers. You know, Ash and I are very passionate about that. We really try to highlight the amazing victims of these crimes. And honestly, I just, I hope that they're able to get peace. It's such a tragic case, and it's really unsettling that it happened here. But, you know, for for their sakes, I hope that these families are able to get closure one day. For sure. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude our case on the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And maybe one day we'll be able to do a follow-up in the case if it's ever cracked, which hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, if you can do that, <laughs> it will. Amen. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. 
Until next time, you crime-loving nerdlings. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review over on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. You can also check out our social media on Instagram at crimetimenerds and send us an email at crimetimenerds at gmail.com or visit our website at crimetimenerds.com. <laughs>